Hi everyone, a small appeal. From sourcing guests to digging up stories to the recording, editing, mixing and distribution, the few of us who work on this podcast do our best and work our hardest to bring you the most up-to-date business stories and insights from literally all over the world. If you enjoy our work and feel like these stories have helped you in any way, please consider supporting us on the Insta Mojo link in the description. And of course, thank you for tuning in so regularly and all the feedback that you send me directly and on social media. A podcast like this, wherever you're listening, is nothing without your contribution and your active listening. Now, on with the show. Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 28th of November, and this is Govind Rajayathi Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, presently enjoying some nice air quality thanks to the rains. Our top stories and themes for the day Standard and Poor's hikes GDP projections for India from 6 to 6.4%, but cuts back for next year. Oil and gas companies are spending only 2.5% of their investments on clean energy. Can you think like a taxman and anticipate surprises? Insights from a veteran Indian tax expert. And Indians get the red carpet in Southeast Asia. Even Malaysia offers visa-free entry. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. S&P hikes GDP growth in India. The good news, Standard & Poor's global ratings on Friday hiked India's GDP growth rate forecast for 23-24, that's the current year, to 6.4% from 6% earlier. The not so good news, for the next year, GDP growth projections have been cut by 50 basis points to 6.4%. The rest of the news, well, all of this was mostly expected and projected by others as well. About next year, I mean. In its economic outlook, Asia-Pacific Q1 2024, emerging markets lead the way. The agency on Monday said it was revising its projection upward as robust domestic momentum seems to have offset headwinds from high food inflation and weak exports. Overall, growth this year and next is on track to be the strongest in emerging market economies, with solid domestic demand, India, Indonesia, Malaysia and the Philippines, SNP said. Back in India, it does expect subdued global growth and a higher base effect and the lagged impact of interest rates to bite. Still, SNP said, we expect growth to slow in the second half of the financial year. As a result, we've lowered our outlook for growth for fiscal 2025 to 6.4% from 6.9%. According to SNP, fixed investment in India has recovered more than private consumer spending which is interesting. However, the agency's projection is lower than the central bank's 6.5%. If you're looking a little further out, yes, which means the year after that, things should be better again. For 2025-26, S&P is retaining India's GDP growth projection unchanged at 6.9%. S&P Global on Monday said that in India, there was a transitory spike in food inflation in the July to September quarter, something we all know, and it appears to have had little effect on underlying inflation dynamics. Still, headline inflation remains above the Reserve Bank's target of 4%, suggesting it will be a while before the rate cycle turns. The report also predicts that repo rate, which determines interest rates, will be unchanged at 6.5% at the end of FY24, that's 23-24, but would drop after that. Overall, the Asia-Pacific region is expected to report healthy growth this year. Markets, gold and oil prices 
Gold prices climbed a six-month peak on Monday, supported by a weaker US dollar and on bets that the Federal Reserve is done with its interest rate hike cycle and the focus shifted to US inflation data due later this week, Reuters reported. So the dollar index edged down marginally against its rivals not far from a more than two-month low level touched last week making gold less expensive for other currency holders. So lower interest rates, just to put it in context, diminish the opportunity cost of holding non-interest bearing gold, Reuters reported. Now put differently, you could make money betting on gold which might appreciate and of course don't carry any interest rates rather than bonds which carry interest rates but if the interest rates are low then obviously they're not lucrative. From gold to oil, which continued to fall for a fourth day, global benchmark Brent dropped below $80 a barrel after falling in each of the last five weeks, the longest such run since the end of 2021, Bloomberg reported. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC Plus, pushed back an important meeting to decide on supply policy by four days to November 30 amidst a dispute over quotas. Most of these countries are debating, mostly led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, whether or not to extend production cards or possibly even add more of them. The energy industry ain't investing. Sticking with oil or energy, just as world leaders prepare to converge at the COP28 climate summit from 30th November, that's Thursday in Dubai, a new report from the International Energy Agency has said that fossil fuel industry is just not investing enough in decarbonization. Despite earning an average annual revenue of $3.5 trillion since 2018, oil and gas companies are spending only 2.5% of their investments on clean energy which in turn is only about 1% of the global clean energy spend, according to the IEA or the International Energy Agency, reported by the Wall Street Journal. Not just that, some 60% of that 2.5% comes from just four companies out of thousands of energy producers. To break down the total energy investment figures, the current estimate is about $2.8 trillion in the current year, with about $1.8 trillion on clean energy and $1 trillion on oil, gas and coal. That seems a lot, but hang on. In its net zero scenario, the IEA forecasts annual fossil fuel investment dropping by $500 billion to 2030 and clean energy investment increasing by more than $2 trillion. But the IEA says that while investments in oil and gas are still needed to ensure security of supply even in a net zero scenario, The $1 trillion currently spent each year is double of what is required in 2030, which is only about seven years from now, to meet demand. So, while the investment in clean energy is way low, the investment in fossil fuel at this point is way high or twice as much of what is estimated to be required. The IEA also estimates that about half of the industry's capital expenditures should go towards clean energy projects by 2030 to be on track for the Paris Climate Agreement target. The IEA also points out, and this is interesting to note, that cutting emissions from oil and gas companies' operations and energy uses is actually one of the cheapest options to reduce greenhouse gases or greenhouse gas emissions generally. It estimated that producing, transporting and processing oil and gas generate nearly 15% of global energy-related emissions and that tackling methane leaks should be a top priority as it can be done cost-effectively and is about half of total operational emissions. 
The good news is that overall clean energy investment worldwide has increased by 40% since 2020, led by solar photovoltaic, wind power and electric vehicles, the Wall Street Journal said. Since we touched upon COP28 in Dubai, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi will visit and attend the UN Climate Conference, it's called COP28 by the way, in Dubai, underlying India's commitment to the issue of climate change, the government said in a statement. He will be in the UAE for two days from November 30th to December 1st. Meanwhile, the US President Joe Biden and China's Xi Jinping are unlikely to be there at the summit as it appears right now. Together, they represent the world's two largest emitters. Thinking like the taxman is challenging. It can happen that a company's tax liability, even if partly met or realized, can wipe out that company or business. Dinesh Kanabar, veteran taxman, founder of Dhruva Advisors, one of the largest tax and regulatory boutiques in India, says that he is seeing it happen more often than not. The solution in some ways, he says, is that boards of companies should be more alert to tax implications of their moves and the financial and other risks of it. Now, this is not the same as just doing a due diligence for, let's say, market penetration or success. I spoke with Kanabar on a range of tax-linked issues, but principally focused on how taxation systems apply in a world where a lot of manufacturing is moving or desired to be moved to India from countries like China. As supply chains become more complex, so does the tax and tariff regime governing all of it. Taking on a China can be tough, but understanding what's on offer is obviously a good place to start if we wish to counter it. In this extract of the conversation, the full version of which appeared on the Core Report Weekend Edition, I asked Kanabar if he could think like the taxman and anticipate what could come. Are you able to think like the taxman does today? Like when you say the example that you gave, I mean, you're thinking that it's going to be revenue and the Supreme Court, in this case, it's a court, says it's capital expenditure, which obviously changes the way you account for it. Something else, you know, you think, you would not even think of anything and then suddenly a tax demand lands. And it's also because people, let's say, in a newer tax, like a goods and services tax, are trying to think on the taxman side, trying to be more and more innovative. So the answer to your question as to whether advisors, organizations can think the way a tax department thinks? The answer is yes and no. There could be issues on which capital versus revenue, you can foresee a litigation. Okay, But take this again, going back to this GST case. Would you really be able to do it at all? Because it was never there. Suddenly out of the thin air, okay, the tax office comes back with an interpretation. Because remember one thing, our tax laws, the way they have been designed, is to say that no central body can tell a tax officer to decide a particular matter in a particular manner. So, in order to prevent any corruption, whatever else, a freedom has been given to the tax office. Unfortunately, what that freedom also means is that each tax officer interprets the same law or a tax treaty in a different manner and there is nobody who can question him so to say, for it. But in the case of gaming, it seems to me that there was anticipation something like this could come. Maybe not as big as you've, you've seen, but... If it was there, then the values had to be what they are in the case of gaming. So what happens is, I was just exactly the point I was making. There's a tax officer in one part of the country, say Kerala, taking a particular point of view. You are sitting in Bombay. Your assessments have gone through after examination, six years, seven years, 
and that Kerala thing goes into high court, you may not even be aware that somebody sitting in some part of India has taken that view. Okay? Now the tax office is going and saying, but this is the right view and not only today, it was always the right view. So you can't anticipate human ingenuity. Right. If there's one thing that you would want to change, which is in the near term, practical, which would make life a little easier from your point of view, what would it be? Central Board of Direct Taxes, CBEC, needs to really give a direction and resolve disputes as they arise. Everything need not be litigated all the way up to Supreme Court. Today, once a dispute starts, it means that until a Supreme Court intervenes, which could be 10, 15 years, okay, you won't get a solution and you have a democratic sword on your head. India needs to come out of it to go back and say that people will take a view and will resolve issues sooner they arise rather than allow them to go. Indians get the red carpet in Southeast Asia. Malaysia will scrap entry visa requirements for citizens of India and China visiting the nation beginning December 1st. That's later this week, according to Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim, quoted by news agencies. Chinese and Indian nationals may stay up to 30 days visa-free, he said in a speech at the People's Justice Party's annual congress in Putrajaya on Sunday. This would be subject to security screening, he added, according to those newswires. Malaysia joins Thailand and Sri Lanka, who offer visa-free travel to Indians and reports now suggest that Vietnam might join the list, at which point the major Southeast Asian tourism destinations in five to six hours flying time from most cities in India will be visa-free entry except for Singapore right now. Meanwhile, neighbour Thailand, when I say neighbour, I mean both Malaysia and Singapore, is also set to introduce a 10-year investor visa in its Eastern Economic Corridor or EEC. The EEC, which covers three provinces east of the capital Bangkok, is a centrepiece of the government's efforts to boost growth and encourage investment, particularly in high-tech industries, the Business Standard reported. Companies investing in modern, environmentally-friendly industries can bring in employees, specialists, executives and professionals who will get an EEC work permit, a flat income tax rate of 17% and a 10-year visa. Thailand earlier waived tourist visa requirements for Indian travellers till May next year and India is also the fifth largest source of foreign tourists in Thailand. Now, there are several trends here. First, of course, is that Indians are back to visiting Southeast Asia in large numbers post-COVID-19. Second, Thailand seems to have recognized that many Indians are heading out for business and longer-term reasons as well, apart from just tourism or weddings, which I will come to in a moment. Thailand appears to be saying that if Dubai can attract hundreds of thousands of wealthy Indians to set up base, so can we. And the answer is that Thailand definitely has a few things going for it, offering near first-world living conditions and healthcare systems at not first-world prices. Moreover, Thailand is quite likely responding to anticipated or present demand rather than creating it. Now, let's get back to tourism. Both Malaysia and Thailand have recognized, long before yesterday of course, that they have good resort and tourism options to offer at a lower cost with similar airfares inbound from most cities in India. So if you were in Delhi and debating whether to go to Goa in December, chances are a resort in Thailand in Malaysia, by the sea of course, of similar proportions or maybe even better would be cheaper to go to and likely have better surrounding infrastructure than the now increasingly congested Goa. Indians spend close to a billion dollars a month on overseas travel now, a figure higher than pre-COVID levels according to Reserve Bank's outward remittances data. 
and some 20 million Indians traveled outwards last year, a figure that could evidently go higher, for example, if visa restrictions were eased. Of course, this is still low than the pre-pandemic average of 25 million Indian outbound tourists annually. But there have been other shifts in the last year or two. Visas for Europe, for example, have been very difficult to get and frustrating. The United States has long wait lists for fresh applicants and those who forgot to renew their passport or visas in the pandemic. In contrast, to go back to where we started, visas to Thailand, Malaysia, among others, are now not even needed, at least for now. So all these countries also need tourism as they go all out to recover from the pandemic-induced loss of business. Thailand wants to get back to its 40 million annual tourist mark hit before COVID. It's also interesting that they are obviously relying on technology to eliminate or track visitors at a pace or level where the pre-screening, which is typically done while issuing visas in the home country, is not required or can be done away with, possibly as an experiment, but an important one. Countries like Singapore, of course, issue visas in three to four days and you still have to apply ahead. But Singapore has now automated its entry, which means you can now scan your passport, get your photograph and fingerprints taken by a machine and you're through. By the way, even Canada has automated entry now for those who can make it. Interestingly, the Prime Minister in his weekly radio address over the weekend wondered why Indians have lavish weddings overseas and if that could change. Yes, it could if you take away the vanity part. But that's tough to do and that's really an individual desire. I would argue that Indian resorts would still find it difficult to match price and logistics. So the problem has to be addressed on the supply side and not the demand side. It's difficult for people to book a resort and wedding affair in Goa at let's say 40,000 rupees a night where a similar resort room in Thailand or maybe Malaysia might be available at half the price which you could just hop onto a flight in Delhi or Mumbai or Bangalore and land there and breeze through. And airfares, my senses, would only be marginally different. By the way, Thailand is also attracting travellers from India to play golf. On that note, that's it from me. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>